building a team without breaking the bank. Find out on today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Novo, the no-fee business bank that refunds fees charged by other ATMs, even internationally. Get $25 when you sign up today at servemaster.com front slash Novo. That's N-O-V-O. Are you tired of dealing with your boss? Do you feel underpaid and underappreciated? If you want to make it online, fire your boss and start living your retirement dreams now. Then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Serve No Master Podcast, where you'll learn how to open new revenue streams and make money while you sleep. Presented live from a tropical island in the South Pacific by best-selling author Jonathan Green. Now, here's your host. Hey guys, I'm still under lockdown. I'm in the garden. I've got two dogs at my feet. I'm a trusty golden retriever, and then we've got a new puppy that is running around right between my feet right now. Now, hopefully you won't hear them barking in the background, but we both know that hope doesn't take you very far. And there goes the neighbor's rooster and the dog barking because he heard the rooster. So we're going to have some background noise. I do the best I can. The dogs, like me, are quarantined. So we're all living in this environment, and hopefully this episode will come out after the quarantine is lifted. But since I have so much extra time where I'm trapped in the garden, there's nothing I can do but record. So I want to give you guys a lot, lot, lot of content. Today, we're going to talk about building a remote team. And I want to take you through my journey and why I think this is so powerful right now. I have a couple of rules as part of my process. And when I first wrote the outline for this episode, I actually wrote this outline two or three years ago. And at the time, my first note says I don't have a VA. And that's still true. I currently have eight people that work for me directly, and at least three other people that are working through agencies where I'm paying them similar salaries, but they're I hired them through an agency and the agency manages them because they're specialists. And then I have other people that I hire project by project. So I have what I consider to be a very large team. I am paying 10 to 11 salaries every single month. It's a lot. It's a lot to grow to, but I don't have that personal assistant. Every time I think I'm going to create uh, someone who's going to be in charge of managing me and being my assistant, they end up going into another role. The most recent person I hired for that specific job is now basically completely in charge of the podcast. (laughs) And that's such a full-time job. Everything from the SEO briefs and the topics that we put together to making sure the videos and the audios get edited through show notes and transcriptions and uploading, writing the descriptions, all of that. So I still don't have a virtual assistant. And I know a lot of people, that's the first thing they talk about hiring. It just never worked right for me. When we don't know what we want someone to do, it's hard for them to do it. And this is a lesson that's so critical is that you have to really clearly define what someone's job is going to be, how long it should take them to handle each of the tasks within that job, and why you're going to pay them for those tasks. The reason you need to do that is so that you can estimate. We talked in our last episode about fast and slow money. How can I tell if someone's a good investment if I can't see the end result of their work? So the first person that I hired on my current team, the person who's been with me the longest is Alice, the editor. Alice is amazing. And when all of my revenue, when the majority of my revenue was coming through Amazon and coming through my books and putting out more and more books, she was a critical part of the team. She was a necessary component, did an amazing job, and she's still an amazing editor. She's super, super valuable part of the team. And her role is clearly, clearly defined. Alice doesn't do ghostwriting. Alice does not write blog posts. Alice doesn't write original content at all. She fixes the content that I write. Now, we have had her do more or less different types of tasks over the years. I've Sometimes I've had her handling everything from the moment I finish a transcription all the way till just about it's ready to publish in format. But it's always fallen into that role of after I've written it, before I publish it, that space where she is. And she's an expert, a specialist. 
And it's much easier to hire specialists for a specific task. Now, if you think about that for a moment, hiring a full-time editor, you say to yourself, do I have that many hours of editing that I need over time? The value of hiring an editor full-time versus project-based is that you can get a much better deal because they have security. So you get something that's more affordable over time. But I have paid Alice a large amount of money over the past few years if you add it all up. But she does a great job. She's excellent in her work. When you're thinking about hiring someone, and maybe the first rule you need is a VA, and that's because if you're small and you're a one-person band and you're a jack-of-all-trades, which means you do everything, and that certainly applies to me, you can't afford to hire 50 people. You want to hire someone who can do lots and lots of different tasks. And the challenge can be, can they do a task when you describe it, or do you have to provide a really detailed checklist and process? I record a lot of training videos using Loom. It's my favorite tool. It's a free video recording tool, and you can see a link to Loom in the show notes. It's useloom.com. And what's good about this tool is that you can, when you record a video, it immediately saves it on their website. And they don't force you to upgrade until you've recorded like, I don't know, 50 videos. And then they go, oh, we'll start deleting old ones unless you pay our fee. And so that's what I upgraded after two years because I've recorded so many training videos. But it's a really great tool. You also download your videos, upload them to YouTube for free, and then delete the old ones. So I've been using Loom for a really long time. I recorded a training video just last night. I recorded a 27-minute video explaining my Kanban board, my project management board, the cards, moving from left to right in the checklists. And I shared it with three different people who work as part of the podcast process. So they could all see the, all the big picture process, see the checklist and the process that I made, and they'd understand where each process starts and ends. So you might not be able to give instructions that are written down. You're not very really good at that, and that's okay. But when you're hiring someone, keep in mind, what level of instruction does this person require in order to accomplish the task? So there are really two types of people that you could hire. One is the person who's the thinker. A thinker is someone who's like a manager or a high-level creative person. The thinker is really good at creating their own SOPs, at defining workflows, at organizing my project management boards, all those processes which are so valuable. That's what the thinker does. And the thinker is excellent at planning, at big picture viewing. The danger and the problem with the thinker is that sometimes we have tasks that are repetitive, that have to be doing the same thing over and over again. Like, watching the video of every single one of my podcasts over the course of two weeks, the whole back catalog, and writing YouTube descriptions and coming up with YouTube tags for each one of those. That could be very, very boring for a thinker because it's too repetitive. Even worse is if you have a process that's almost exactly the same every week, like posting the same content every single week or answering the same emails, anything with a really, really repetitive process. Now, the thinker won't fit well in that role, but the doer or the action taker someone who's really good at just doing things, but they need a really clearly defined set of tasks in front of them. You give them a checklist and say, work through this. It can take them time to learn it, but once they do, they can do it over and over and over again. A great example of this, I had a friend when I was in college. He was from my hometown. He didn't go to college. He got a job working at a car factory, and he used to bolt the back seat into a car. He'd bolt the back seat, knew 80 to 100 per day in the factory, and he loved his job. He was someone who I thought would never go anywhere in life because he couldn't figure out where he fit in, but he found his role. And I want to make this absolutely clear. Doers are such an important part of the team. You need a lot more doers than thinkers because I need a lot more implementation than I do strategy. Now, this means when you're hiring a VA or hiring your first employee, you'll start to go through that process of a, how do I you know, see what's the right type of person to hire? What kind of person do I want to bring on the team? Do I need a thinker or a doer? And it comes down to, how good are you at defining the task? So because of my condition, it's hard for me to spend time on the computer 
shooting lots of those training videos. I wish I could do them all the time. I wish I could really work and design all of my boards by, myself. So I have people on the team. I have about two or three people who are really, really good at thinker work, who are really good at reorganizing the boards, coming up with strategy, doing new and different tasks every single week. The rest of my team, they do a lot of repetitive tasks that are critical. So their ability to do the same thing over and over again without making mistakes and without getting bored is so useful. My video editor re-edits similar videos all the time. So the process he goes through is very similar for every single video. If that was boring to him or if he was really always looking to do, oh, I want to do different types of videos every single week, that wouldn't work. So when I hire someone, it's not always just about how good are they at the test task. It's can they fill the role I need, which is to do the same thing over and over again or to lead a team. And there's a cool management book that my friend turned me on to that says for every seven people you hire, you need a manager. And that's about right. I'm finding that with the size of my team, more and more of the tasks I'm assigning are management tasks. Now, we have one large manager and then someone who does a small bit of managing. And then I also encourage people to manage each other. So we set up systems where people are in charge of different processes. I'll put someone in charge of one board and then they can assign tasks to other people across that board that need to get done. And then I have another board that someone else is in charge of. So they can be in charge of a process and manage or assign tasks to other people. And that's how we're slowly growing. But as I grow, if I grow to 15 employees, I'll need another manager. And if I grow to 20 employees, I'll need a third manager because in that five to six range. So I might need two or three thinkers to go with 15 to 20 doers. How I build out my team for every five to seven employees need a manager. So those are a different skill. Now, when you're thinking about hiring someone for a task, my school of thought is that you need to follow the 80% hiring rule. The 80% hiring rule is if someone can do a job 80% as good as you, then it's worth outsourcing and hiring them. They can always get better. And you can also always use your time more effectively. We talked in the last episode about how much your time is worth. And if you can hire someone to do a task 80% as well as you for $5 an hour, okay? Let's just say it's a flat $5 an hour to do an easy number. If you can make $10 an hour doing something else, you can get paid for an hour of work, then pay two other people to do an hour of work. And even though each of them is 80% as good of you, the end result is 160% of what you could accomplish in the same amount of time. You've actually improved what you're capable of exponentially. Now, the dream is to hire people that are better than you at every task you do. That's hard. And if you spend all your time chasing that, you'll never build a team. There are certain tasks at which I'm really, really great. I don't think anyone can write blog posts for Surf Master as good as me, but I physically can't. And this is the rule I use for hiring writers. I have Paris review all of these writers. I sent out five test articles and all of them are going to end up on the website. They're hopefully will be uploaded before this episode comes up because we're in the middle of finishing the final design of the website. We finished and moved the web designer. All of Surf Master moved from the assignment of the page builder, now it's assigned to the developer who does the backend code and the fixing and the security and all the fancy stuff. And he's really, really advanced. It's amazing. But when I'm hiring people for a specific task, I look at it and go, can they do it 80% as good? I mean, that's the baseline. We, if you're always looking for someone that's as good as you, it's hard because we all think we're the best. We all have high opinions of ourselves. We're a lot, we end up really good at a lot of stuff when we're learning our online skills. Whatever business model you build, you go through this process where you master lots and lots and lots of different skills. And so you don't want to give up what you're really good at. And this can be hard. I went through this a lot saying, well, what kind of team should I build? And this can actually mean that if you're still working for someone else, that you should, if you have a daytime job, okay, you work eight hours a day for $100 a day, and you're hiring people for $5 an hour, you can spend eight hours of your time and get back 20 hours of their time. That doubles 
your output per day. It's kind of a crazy decision-making calculus. It's something a little bit advanced, but I want to share with you because I know some of you are still working or we're working from home and we're figuring out how to use our time. What we discover when we work from home is that we can accomplish a lot more when we're not pretending to work. And we all know what I'm talking about. There's a big study that says most people spend, the average American worker in an office spends six hours a day checking email or pretending to check email and two hours a day working. I'm certainly guilty of this at my last few jobs. I would get my tasks done so fast. My manager, who wasn't a creative thinker, didn't know what to do because her number one priority was making it look like she was good at her job. So I had to make it look like I was working. I'm sure we, many of us have had managers like that. And if you have, why don't you leave a comment below this video because I'd love to hear about that. Well, I know that I'm not the only person that had a manager that had been promoted beyond the level of their competence. So it's critical to answer this question. What is your time worth? I was on a webinar last week where the presenter said, I charge $5,000 an hour for consulting and I get paid it because I do Fortune 500 consulting. And I said, wow, it's 10 times what I charge. This person's on a phone call with me. I'm getting 10 times the value I'm giving. And I have a lot of friends who are more expensive than me. I thought charging $500 an hour is a lot. It's more than my dad charges as a corporate lawyer who's very well known to respect his industry. But it turns out, maybe it's inflation or maybe it's other things, that even though I think $500 an hour is a lot of money, and so I give a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Usually when I do a consulting call, it goes more than an hour. Or a coaching call goes beyond the hour limit. There's other people that are more expensive. I'm working with a client right now on a project, and I said, uh, here's how much it costs. We have to spend three hours on the phone as part of the process. He goes, oh, well, this is what I charge per hour. So you'll actually have to pay me to work with me. It was joking, but it showed me that a lot of people do charge a great deal amount of money per hour, that $500 isn't the limit. It turns out there's a lot further you can go. And what that means is you can do a coaching call and then redirect that money to your team. It's not the only way to do it, but it's a way to think about it is there's this mistake we make. And I want to dial into this because it's so critical that we'll do a low money task because of a poor financial calculus. We'll say, you know what? I'm going to spend four hours uploading blog posts today or, or updating social media today. I could pay someone else $20 to do it. So by doing it myself, I'm saving $20. But if you really believe your time is worth $10 an hour or $20 an hour, you're actually losing $60 because time you could spend. Now, it's hard to give your time a concrete value if you don't have a salary or clients that you could spend that time with. But that is what I have to do every single week. I spend a lot of money on salary. I spend more on salary now than I was paid at my last job. It's not quite double it right now, but it'll probably be within the next three months. By the end of the year, it might be triple or quadruple what I was making at my last full-time job. So that salary every week, that's the first thing I have to make. And so my decision-making calculus, my phase doesn't come from what an hour of my time is worth. It goes from how easily can I generate that each week? Do we have it coming through passive income? Is it a number that's not hard or stressful for me to hit every week? And so that's kind of my overall team budget that when it's Friday, I'm not stressed out. Will I have enough money to pay everyone? Cause I've been in that situation before. I never want to be there again. I want to be totally honest with you guys. This is the third team I built. The first team I built was significantly more expensive. So I was making a ton of money, not really paying attention and I didn't know how to manage a team. And so many people on the team were ripping me off. In fact, almost every single person eventually got fired because I realized they were charging me for hours. They weren't working and I didn't really know how to manage and didn't really learn that process. And so since then I've learned that you have to really set structures in place. And this is a mistake I made with hires. You have to use time tracker software. You absolutely have to. I use time doctor. There's a link below. You go to servemaster.com front slash time doctor and you can see the software I use. What's great about this software is that I can input everyone's different salary because people get paid different amounts because they're experts in different areas. And so there's people that are some skills are more expensive than others, but everyone's in a similar bandwidth. There's not a huge difference. And it can tell me, oh, here's what your maximum could be each week if people work their maximum hours. Because not everyone always works their full 20 or their full 40 hours. Sometimes people only work eight hours or 13 hours. And sometimes they work 42 hours. They work a little overtime. 
And the reason you have to use time tracking software is that it creates a field of integrity. It's the best way to say it. Because if people can just charge you and you get a, without any tracking, you get a big bill one day and you don't know how they spent their time, the very least are wondering what happened and you have no way to audit other than accusing them. Now, this hasn't happened to me, but one of my friends with a larger team has had it people who were working for him and their son came and used the computer and was playing a video game and the time tracker didn't catch it. That's why the time tracker takes a screenshot every certain number of minutes or certain number of seconds, however you set it up, because sometimes it misses something. Normally it catches if the person's not working on a, a listed task. So it automatically catches if someone's doing a task they shouldn't be doing. And this allows me to look back and see what someone actually doing. Now, I don't do this all the time. I'm not heavy on checking the screenshots, but I have someone else on the team who does that, who checks to see if people are doing what they're supposed to do. And this tells me the hours. And when people send me payment requests at the end of a week, every week I say, how many hours did you work? Give me a rundown of what you worked on and what you accomplished. Kind of a quick summary. And then I check and see if it matches time doctor. And it's helpful because I have so many employees. How else can I keep track of them? Because everyone's working from home. So it's not a lack of trust. It actually creates an environment where there's no confusion. There's not the room for an accusation because there's an arbiter. Now I have had employees who said, oh, taking the screenshots is really invasive. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I said, no problem. You can find somewhere else to work because they have to be consistent. I can't have some employees have it and not others. What is hard is if you hire an employee and then you add in this technology, telling them, hey, I want to start time tracking you, that feels to them like an accusation. It is hard to change. So I actually put in every time I post a job opening, I say, here's how we work. I pay every Friday. Ideally, I can pay you on PayPal, but I can't pay all my employees. That way I have to use several other platforms because people are in countries where they don't have access to PayPal. And I have to use time tracking software. You have to be comfortable with that. Don't bother applying, applying if you're not because there's no other way for me to manage. See, the traditional office is everyone's in the same room, managers walking around the room and looking at everyone's computer screens. Because my team works from home, that's a virtual way of looking at their screen. And it keeps a permanent record. There's other time tracking tools out there. I just happen to use Time Doctor because that's what my friend uses. And so he said use it, so I use it. And I've never had a problem with it. It's been a good experience. And it keeps it really, really simple. Now, when you're hiring someone, should you go full-time, part-time, or contract? And I'll take you through each of those. A full-time employee is someone you have to give 40 hours of work a week to. When I hire people, I always hire them at part-time with the possibility of upping to full-time. I just upped one of my employees for 20 to 40 hours yesterday. Usually I say there'll be a trial period of three months or 12 weeks where you're going to work 20 hours a day at this salary. And that allows me to have time to train the person. That means if the person's making a massive mistake, I've cut how far they can go down the wrong path in half. I have had people work on the wrong tasks or misunderstand me or go down the wrong way. Some people will not will be unsure of an answer and so they won't take action until they hear back from me. Other people will just go down the wrong path and not tell me until I check their screenshots or check their work and I go, what are you doing? That's not what I said at all. So you start learning that employees have different approaches to problem solving. And again, this is how they, where they are on the thinker to action taker spectrum. Ideal employee is someone who when you give them a task and they're not sure, they will send you the questions and then they'll work on another task they're sure of until they hear back from you. So I have an employee who every time he asks me a question, it's a really good question. Every time he asks a question, I go, that's totally reasonable. I wasn't clear enough. Fair enough. Here's the answer. But he doesn't not work for the whole day until he hears back from me. He just works on something else on the list. That's the right mindset. Not everyone has that mindset. So that requires training and people don't get there until they work with you for a long time. So when you're first starting out, contract might be the best thing. And that's where you pay project by project. An example of this is that I have my Kindle description tool. One of the first things I had someone build this was a while ago. I hired them through Elance before it became Upwork. It was a developer. I said, oh, what I really want to do is have a little program that 
helps me to generate my Amazon description HTML. There's some other tools out there, but I, there's certain things I don't like about them. Let me help me to build my own, and they did. It cost me $300. I'll give you the real number. This is about three years ago. The reason it's on my mind is that we're redoing it. My developer is going to redo it now and make it like 50 times better. We're moving it from another website to the Servant of Master site. Again, we'll post a link in the show notes and below this video so you can see that tool in action. We're constantly improving it to make it really, really good. But we have templates built in with really great book descriptions. And you can just kind of go through and replace words and follow the formatting and have a pretty good book description, even though you've never done it before, even though you're not a master copywriter. We're actually in the process of adding some new HTML that's allowed and some new templates. So you can choose from several different types of templates to start from to make it really awesome and easy for you. So initially, the person I hired was a contract. The value of a contract is you know what it's going to cost. I've used contract workers for a lot of tasks. For the comic book, when I hired someone to convert Servant a Master into a comic book script, that was a contract. It was a flat fee. I knew what it was going to cost. For the artwork, same thing. The problem with a contract is you pay more. The benefit is you don't have to worry about mission creep or surprise billing. What can happen when you have an open-ended task? If you don't say, I want you to do this, you have four hours allotted to this task. If you don't give a time limit to a task, they can work on something. My friend was telling me about someone, one of his employees. I gave a task that would take me, if I was going really hard and doing super deep research about an hour, and took 16 hours. And I said, whoa, that's a lot of hours. Half a week, <laughs> two full work days to do an hour task. Now, if the person can get faster and faster, that's great. I've had the same thing. I had someone who I had to let go about eight months ago or six months ago because every task he did, he would fail. And I had him work on a task that just take an hour. It took about eight hours. I said, what's happening? What took so long? And when they can't explain why it took so long, that's when you have to start worrying and you have to start assigning that person time limits to put a frame around them so that they don't spend too long on a task. And I have to do this when I have Alice doing special editing tasks. I have to really control because she's a perfectionist, totally understandable. She might spend eight hours on a task that the budget's a one hour for, especially if it's from a client or it's a smaller task. So with certain employees or certain tasks, depending upon your budget, contract can be the right thing to do because contract, there's no surprise. You know what it's going to cost to finish the job. Now, this is a type of gambling for the person you're hiring. The person you're hiring puts in a bid and they're hoping they can get it done in a certain amount of time. If the job takes longer than they thought, they don't get paid extra money. So they end up at a place where like, oh, I just want to finish this job, right? So they're trying to have a really clearly defined task for you, really limit how many revisions or questions or change requests you can make. So really, when you're starting out, probably first you'll hire people contract, then you'll go to part-time, and then you'll go to full-time as you grow and can have a large budget. Frank, I've said recently you know, that I want to hire more people. Actually, the first thing I need to do, I've been thinking about this last night, is move all of my people who are still at 20 hours a week up to 40. Now, some of them, 20 is all they want to do, or that's the bandwidth they have available, but the other ones... Yeah, I want to grow. So that's what I need to focus on first is increasing the amount of risk, amount of budget I have every week to grow everyone's salary to where they want to be. So they have full security. So they don't have to do other part-time work. They don't have to work for any other people. They don't have to do filler work. They can just work for me. And that's the next part of my process. So the danger is the overhead blues. About seven years ago, I made way too much money. And my overhead got really big. And it reached a certain point, including my assistant. I did have an assistant, but she was an in-person assistant, not a virtual assistant where every single week I had to put in extra hours to make enough money to pay everyone. And that's what it felt like. I started to feel like I was working for my team. So there's a lesson, something I talk about when you're an employee is that your boss tries to pay you as low as they can to do a job that they need and you have to generate more money than they're paying you. So whatever you're paid right now, you're making more money. Otherwise, they wouldn't have you on board. You're generating more revenue. Now, 
for my team, that's the sum of their parts. But when I look at each person's job, I see how much does the work they're doing generate. And because I've been doing this for a decade now, I'm better at estimating that. And so I can really tell what I can afford to invest in each part of the business. Right now, I'm about to spend a lot of money on a contract worker for blog posts and podcast descriptions. No longer will I write the descriptions that go with these episodes. Someone on my team will write the descriptions that go in the podcast description if you're looking in your iPhone or your phone app, if you're looking on YouTube, but then we actually hire an outside article writer for the actual blog post. So if you're looking at this on Serve No Master and there's text below the little player, that's something I pay a contract worker to do in addition to all the other blog posts coming out. So when I look at those, I had a discussion with my friend and he was like, oh, you know, I have one friend who pays really low number. I don't know how he gets those workers. Another friend who's paying more than me. I'm kind of in the middle, but I know what I can afford. I know, okay, this is what I could spend on a blog post because I know it would generate that much money in revenue or new traffic or opt-ins over time. And I say, this is how much money I have to put in to invest in growth in that part of the business. So there's this decision-making calculus each time. The beauty of an overhead thing of a, a contract worker is you pay it once. You know what's going to be, you know what you're going to get at the end. So I know what I can pay to get 10 articles, which is two and a half months of content. So if I just look at five times that number, that's a blog post a week for the rest of the year, basically. So I can really estimate that. I wanted, I actually was going through a process. So I was trying to hire an in-house writer, someone to work for me full time. The challenge with that is that <laughs> I don't know how long each article is going to take for them and they might be faster or slower. And it can be hard. That's a specialist that's hard to pay per hour. It's much more common for that particular specialty to pay per word. So I finally said, you know what? In-house isn't working. It's not making sense. I did a lot of research. My friend hired someone in-house. He's actually going to switch the service I'm using because it's too stressful for his in-house person. He says things to me all the time. I have one friend. I have a lot of friends I'm talking about. These aren't all the same friend who says, I'm always trying to come up with work for someone on my team to do. That's not the place you want to be in. So when you have this overhead, it becomes what you're thinking about all the time. So as you take people on, you have a responsibility. And it's um, kind of like the social contract. You're in the democracy. The idea is that they have a loyalty to you to do a certain amount of tasks and you have a responsibility to them to take care of them and provide them for work. Like right now, there's a lot of people worried about the shift in the economy. And my response to that risk and nervousness could be, okay, shrink the team. If I eliminate the whole team, my income level will stay the same. My gross won't change, but my net will go up massively. And that's one mindset. My mindset is the opposite. My mindset is I need to make sure I'm there for my people. Some people are going to need more hours. Some people are going to need more adaptability. How can I take care of them? And it's that balance, okay? As long as I'm able to, I want to support my team in every way possible. And it becomes a little bit of a responsibility. And that's when you're in the employee-employer relationship. And of course, that's because I've been an employee and I want to be a better employer than I was worker. I don't want to be better than the bosses I used to have. So when you're looking at your hiring someone, write down your budget before you talk to any employee. So when I'm hiring someone for a contract, you go, this is my budget. This is what I can afford. And when I'm hiring someone for full-time, and they go, oh, this is what I want to say. Look, this is my budget. If it's too low for you, I totally understand. I'll hire someone else. And sometimes that's what I do. I don't always hire the best person. I hire the best person who can take the salary I have available. The salaries I pay are based on my overall budget. You know, sports teams have like a spending cap. So they have a max amount of money they can spend on the team. And then they divide it amongst all the players. That's how my budget works. I have a certain amount of money I can spend every week that I don't want to go over because it puts me into an area where I'm not sure I can afford it. And I don't want to go into that area. I want to be sure every single week so sometimes employees, uh, they ask for more hours and I can't afford it long term. I say, oh, I could afford it this week, but maybe not next week. And so I don't give them a lot of extra hours. I say, oh, I want to keep this number of hours because I know I can pay you this much every single week for the foreseeable future. Whereas if I give you a ton of hours now, it might be in three weeks that we have a problem and I have to cut back your hours or I have to give you a hiatus or even cut you from the team. 
So my thought is always long view, long view, long view. I want people to be working with me for months, years, years, decades. I don't really want to have any turnover. I love my team right now. I'm so happy with the team I built right now. It took me three tries to get here. So the final thing I want to talk today is about staff sources. Where can you hire people from? Now, I'm looking at this list, and again, it's massively changed over the past few years. It's funny, I find all these old outlines, because I just write outlines all the time. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I often find that things, well, things change, don't they? So I'm going to take you through uh, the order of things. The first place I'm going to recommend is not on my initial list. It's called jobrack.eu. Jobrack is amazing. You can go to servemaster.com. I'll put a link in the show notes, as always. And if you're from Eastern Europe, or if you've never worked with people from Eastern Europe, boy, throw a thumbs up, because they're amazing. Throughout my career, I've gone through hiring a lot of people from the Philippines and a lot of people from South Africa. And currently, most of my team is from Eastern Europe. And boy, they're good. Their English is solid. The work ethic is amazing. Uh, Jobrack is owned by a guy named Noel, who I've met in person once. He remembers me better than I remember him. But we email back and forth all the time. If you go to their website, you'll actually see a video testimonial I recorded in my garden last week for him. He didn't ask me for a testimonial. I was thinking about my team and I said, you know what? I have my stress is that there's no one on my team that's the first person I'd cut. If I have to let go of one person, I don't know who it would be because they're all amazing. And I realized the majority of my team came from him. So the beauty of Jobrack is that it's a contract. Most employment platforms, you pay a monthly fee to be allowed to post jobs or to have a certain number of active jobs and have a certain number of conversations. Jobrack, you pay per posting. And sometimes I hire, in fact, I have hired two people from the same job before. What's really great about them is that they're a smaller, um, if you are bigger than me and you want to pay them for a white glove thing where they do the whole process for you, you can. But I'm hiring, so, I hire so many people. I'm like, oh, I'd rather put in the time myself, learn how to get good at hiring, which I have. And as part of that process, he actually sent me, goes, oh, here's two really good example article, uh, job posts that we have. Look at those and model your post on them. So that's why all my job posts look similar because I follow this template they gave me and I really refine that each time I post a job. That's why people go, Jonathan, I've seen you post eight jobs the last six months. I thought I'd finally apply to one that fit me. So people notice that I, when I'm on a hiring spree, that's my favorite platform to hire from. In fact, I closed my other two accounts my other, on other platforms and I'm really just focused on job because I just keep getting great people. I have had some people that weren't the right fit from there and that's my fault. And the good thing is when you don't have someone's right fit, you tell them and at least for me, sometimes they'll give you, they'll help you out to get the replacement or help you to find another person to fill that role or let you post a new job and give you another credit, whatever it is. Because they're more open to working with you, you feel like you're working with like a real boutique agency as opposed to feel like you're just working with a website where all you're talking to is another VA that's getting underpaid to answer your questions in the chat box. So I've been really, really happy with working with them. The second place that I'll talk about is Outsourcely. Outsourcely is what I would call ups and downs. Sometimes I get really great applicants and sometimes I get really, it's not the right fit. Outsourcely is where I hired my editor from. She's my been a great employee. She was outsourcing was really, really amazing consistently a few years ago. The last few times I posted on there, it just has been a lot harder to get through. And as part of my hiring process, basically I have a test. So for every single task, before I post a job, I sit down and find her to find a test because I need to see the person actually do it. Everyone can say they can do something. I create a small test. Um, for example, for a video editor, I have the same video clip I have everyone edit. I have the whole, I have a little folder in Dropbox. I post a link. I say, here's all the assets, and the task is in there in the Word document. Read it, and then do it. And because it's the same task, even when I'm hiring a new editor, if I hire a new video editor in a couple of years or add a second video editor to the team, I can compare it to everyone who's ever done an application. So it's a consistent part of the process. What I've noticed is that almost everyone on Jobrack does the test. No questions, no problem. There's different levels of quality. Sometimes the test can be hard. When I was hiring a developer, I explained a problem I was having and I said, describe me how you would 
approach the solution. And some people just wrote answers. They go, oh, I definitely don't want to do that. And other people are like, well, I need, I need access to this, this, and this. I need you to give me access to your developer account and access to the backend of your website. I need access to the back of this. And then I can figure out how it approach it. I was like, okay, no, that's not the right person for me. Even though their solution might have been really excellent, I need to work with someone who can explain it to me in dumb speak. My developer is way smarter than me. He understands stuff at a really high level because he's great at his job. I understand the basics. Like I know how to format a blog post. I've done minor changes to HTML pages, minor, minor copy and paste I'm talking about, but he can do amazing things. And he's like, Oh, you know what? We don't even need a WordPress theme. I said, Whoa, that's a language I don't even understand, but he's able to explain it to me in a way that I get. And the other thing is that he's actually friends with another one of my employees. So when my other employee said, actually, this guy is someone, a good guy, I was like, well, he had the best answer and he got a recommendation for the team. He's on board and they actually work together all the time. What's great about them being already friends is that they aren't afraid to communicate with each other and get stuff done in a really great way. They're also both job rack hires, but outsourcely, you can find really good people. Outsourcely, you will also find a lot of Westerners. So you actually find people in England, America, Canada, which you don't find on the other job platforms I use. So outsourcely can be hit or miss. If you use my link to outsourcely, you get $100 credit, which is enough for like five months at their lowest tier plan. I think it's $19 a month right now. So it's more than enough time to use it and try it out and actually be able to communicate with people and possibly hire someone. You may find the right person at Outsourcely. I've just been really, really, really lucky with Jobback. And that's not everyone. That's just me. Another friend who does really well on other platforms and some people outsource is the right place. So it's worth, usually when I post a job, I'll post it on all three platforms, but I'm not hiring anyone right now. So I froze my Outsourcely account. I lowered it to a free level because I don't want to keep paying when I'm not looking for a new person right now. The third place to look is onlinejobs.ph. My personal experience on onlinejobs.ph is that people never do the test. That a lot of people who are horribly underqualified apply for the job. You get a high, a large number of applicants, but more of them are copy and paste. So JobRack, it's all really custom applications because you don't get a lot of applications. So it's a much smaller network. Outsourcely, I get about 50 to 60% copy and paste. They didn't even read what the job was. They just saw the category and applied, applied, applied. Online jobs, it's almost 90% at least of people who didn't even read the job and they apply for jobs that are way outside their skill set and they just want to get hired even if they have no idea what the job is. So on every platform, you're going to get a little bit of that. Now, my friend who has a team that's about three or four times bigger than mine, he almost exclusively hires on online jobs, and he gets amazing people. He's got a real gift for hiring on online jobs, and he had bad luck. Every time he's on job rack, he's gotten bad results. So that's why I'm giving you multiple platforms and explaining why they're different. Now, each of these you pay in a different way. Again, online jobs is like a monthly fee, and you're able to have three active jobs at any one time. You can even post jobs, I think, for free, but to be able to communicate or to get jobs like approved really fast, you have to be on a paid account. So that's what I've always done there. And again, it comes down to how well you define the job. So if you're not really clear on what you ask, you might, you're going to get a lot of people that might not be the right fit because you don't know what you want and they don't know what you're looking for. So you, you get that vagueness. The next place you can look, number four, is Upwork. Upwork used to be Elance. Then it got merged with Odesk. Odesk bought Elance. And I barely use Upwork now. I find it very, very, very hard to use. They've done a lot of things. They've really shifted. It's used to be great for people like me, like smaller businesses or individuals who are hiring small tasks. They've really tried to turn it into a corporate asset. So before I could message, I could post a job and I could look and I could invite 20 or 30 people to a job that I thought were the right fit. And I'll get, you know, a bunch of applications would hire the best person. Now I'm only allowed to invite three people and people are only allowed to bid on like three jobs a month or something. So they aren't very likely to apply to a job unless they're absolutely sure they're going to get it. So they've actually created an environment that I find a lot harder to operate in. So I'm pulling away from that platform right now that may shake out that there's a new alternative comes out or something. But right now, 
I find it hard to hire on there. So it's possible. It just, because of the process right now, because they've changed it so much, I just, it's not worth the hassle to me because I, I tend to, right now, I'm not really doing contract hiring anyways for all the things I would do contract. For example, I was actually thinking about hiring a contract team to update my Kindle description generator. And I talked to my developer and he goes, oh yeah, I can do that. And it will take me this many hours. I was like, oh man, so much better to just give him more hours and have him do it. The fifth place you can look is in Facebook groups, uh, depending upon what type of person you're looking for. So I've actually looked for like someone who's super high level. There's a high level position that's called an online business manager. And that's someone who basically takes over operations for a business like mine. They're quite expensive. And a lot of them, they're not the right fit for you. But when you get to the higher level, you have to go to those special groups. There's special virtual assistant groups. Now, those people, they're a lot more expensive. They're professional virtual assistants. I saw someone in the group who said, how many other virtual assistants in this group making $100,000 a year? And I was like, whoa, I'm definitely not looking to pay my VA six figures. There's nothing wrong with that. More power to those people, but they're looking to work for like Silicon Valley startups. They're looking to work for the type of companies that are spending other people's money. You know, when a company gets investment, the first thing they do is get like bigger offices, nicer chairs for everyone, ping pong tables and all of that stuff. And so the way they spend money is very different than how I spend money because every single penny that comes in to serve a master feels like it's my penny. So I want to spend it as wisely as possible. But those groups do exist. And if you're actually doing consulting work or contracting work, they can be great groups to join to find work because there's tons of stuff going on in there. It's just not the right fit for me. Those are people that are looking to work for a different type of company than I am, and that's totally fine. So I haven't had great success hiring from Facebook groups. The other place that can be really great is if you have an existing following, then you can email your list. And I have done this. You know, I have tried working with people for my following in the past. It has been ups and downs. I tend to be better at working with an intern for my following because that's someone who, instead of paying them, I do training, and that's because they usually need a lot of training to really figure out what I need. A great example of this is Paris. Paris started as an intern. I posted an ad saying, oh, you know what? I've taught people other things. I want to do copywriting. I want a copywriting intern and work with Paris. And now she runs maybe 80% of the company. She's basically the number two, the vice president of Servant Master. And she's really wonderful at her job. And she's building her own other business on the side at the same time. So she's doing really, really amazing things. And so people can start as an intern, turn to employer, turn really successful. And that can be the right fit. When I've hired people from my audience, that tends to be the intern path has been the right path. When I try to hire people directly, it hasn't really worked out. I have tried it in the past. It hasn't been the right thing for me. That doesn't mean it will work for you. What's important to see is that I try lots of different things. And it may very well be that in six months, if you reach out to me, I'm using a totally different platform. Jobback is no longer working for me. But it's, good for, it's been good for me for a while. So I hope it maintains its quality. I have high hopes for Noel. And that's my process. Now, I do want to say that Actually, interns can be my most expensive employees because I invest huge swaths of time in them. There's a reason I only work with one intern at a time. This is a really great book on management by the guy who took over Intel in the 80s and changed them from a company that makes RAM to a company that makes processors, which means they shifted from a company that makes commodity, anyone can make RAM, to a company that makes something specialist. There's only two companies that make processors, AMD and Intel. That's it. So it's a much more, you have to stay cutting edge, you have to be good R&D, you have to have this whole approach. And one of the big things he teaches, and I'm still working through the book, like always, I've never finished the books I start, is that the responsibility of the boss or the manager is to teach. So with interns, I really got that. For a long time, I didn't get that with paid employees. And I realized now I'm actually, at any given time, I'm really focused on one of my employees and I'm putting a lot of time into training them and a lot of time into answering their questions because I'm trying to build them up. This is why I try to hire one employee every three months because I know it takes me about three months to train someone to where they're just humming along to where they're like so awesome. I have some employees who I'm looking to hire more people just to be their assistant. Like we're trying to grow so fast that there are people who are doing so well and who were struggling three months ago and now they need a staff. It's amazing. So 
the process, and this is why I used to be really good with interns, I've always seen interns as someone you have to teach, but I'm like, if I'm paying someone, why would I teach them? Why would I pay someone to watch a training video, right? But it's the opposite now. Now I do pay people to go through training and go through exercises and to learn and to grow because I see that when I train them and build them up, long term, I get the return on that investment. So I invest a lot of time in my team. I try to be available to them almost 24-7 because they'll work at different times and so I try to adapt to that. So that mindset of when you hire someone, yes, you hire the expert, but a lot of it can be they can be really good. Like my developer is really good, but I have to guide him on which projects to work on in which order. He doesn't know if I show him 10 different projects, he can tell me how long each one will take it, but he doesn't know which one is worth the most to the company because that's a different type of assessment that's outside of his area of expertise. So I begin to teach him that so he can start doing more decision-making calculuses on his own. I go, well, this does this, this does that. Here's why I want to do this. I was talking to him last night. I said, look, the reason I want to convert the website as quickly as possible more than anything else is because it's worth this much a day. Once we fix it, it will generate this many more email addresses, this much more money every single day. And he goes, okay, now I get it. So understanding, and it comes from the training, and it means that your employees will stay more in alignment with your vision and they will continue to grow. Now guys, thank you so much for spending time with me. I appreciate you listening to all the background noise. I really can't control my neighborhood. My nose is starting to get a little stuffy, so maybe my voice got a little deeper. I apologize if that happened. But I want you to see and come with me on this journey because I love spending time with you. And I want you to have more of a vision of what kind of team you want to build. I actually wrote down about a year ago my dream team. I wrote down an order of operations, a TOE, table of operations and equipment. And my team, I said, here's what I need. Here's what kind of salary I want for each person. Here's how many hours I want from them. And then I began filling in those roles. So I had a strategy. So having the long view can help you when it comes to building a team. And if you already have a team, you had some cool experiences, whether they're good experiences or bad experiences, I'd love to hear about them. Please share them in the comments below and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Serve No Master. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode. We'll be back next Tuesday with more tips and tactics on how to escape that rat race. Head over to servenomaster.com forward slash podcasts now for your chance to win a free copy of Jonathan's bestseller, Serve No Master. All you have to do is leave a five-star review of this podcast. See you Tuesday. Ready to master the art of copywriting? Learn the most valuable online skill without spending a penny at servemaster.com front slash ultimate.